This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. All right, so Happy New Year. We're in 2020 now. And so we thought the right way to begin the new year is to give you a very special gift. And so I invite you right now to reach underneath your seat and you'll find it there. Look for your gift right underneath your chair. Not bad, huh? How many of you thought that might be authentic when you actually pulled it out there? I mean, the only thing we asked this morning is please do not put those into the offering bag when it's passed in, in the service. It's, it's actually estimated that $150 million worth of counterfeit currency is, is being passed uh, in our country right, actually right now. And, and since it is a problem, bank employees are given some very specific training on how to identify a counterfeit bill. And so they are trained to, to touch and to tilt, to look at and to look through a bill in order to see whether or not it is authentic. And the things that they look for are you know, color shifting ink, the lack of raised printing on the bill, blurry borders, no watermark, no security threads that are woven into the bill, and, just, and mismatched series dates. And all of those are indications that it is, in fact, faked. But interestingly, the first step of their training for a bank employee is actually not to get the training on how to spot a fake, but they are actually given an opportunity in a room to just handle authentic bills. And so they'll just count real money, and they'll do that until they know very quickly when something that is not real has come across their fingers. And then they will touch, tilt, look at, and look through. And so the way to know something that is authentic is to have an experience with the authentic. And that's important. And it is, it is not just true for money, but it is true for our lives as followers of Christ as well. Because the more that we experience, the more that we live into, the more that we understand what it means to be an authentic Christian, how to live an authentic Christian life, then the quicker we'll be able to spot when we're not living uh, it out. And our lives may be a close facsimile, but, but not the real thing. Now, in a message series we're beginning today, in the book of 1 John, we are going to touch, tilt, look at, and look through the lens of 1 John to identify seven marks of an authentic Christian. And those seven are transformation. Transformation is what we're going to look at today. Uh, Love for God, love for God and others. Another uh, mark of authenticity is confidence in being forgiven. Another is hope in Christ's return. Sacrifice through generosity and prayer. Are we sacrificial in the way that we live our lives? Uh, And then finally, are we dependent? Do we depend on Christ for his care in our lives and for answered prayer? Now, John, the disciple turned apostle, is the perfect guide for our reflection, as we'll see. Now, the New Testament reveals John as a force of nature. It's the only way to describe him. Jesus referred to John and his brother uh, James as as Boanerges, which is a Greek term for sons of thunder. (laughs) He called them the sons of thunder. Long time ago when I was 
in uh, graduate school and seminary, I had a classmate who uh, led a hard rock Christian band, which some people think is contradiction in terms, but you know. But, and it was called Bo Energies. And I hated their music, but I thought, that is the coolest name for a band that I could ever imagine. Um, and so that was John. Uh, he lived with a sense of urgency when Jesus invited him to become a fisher of men, say, John, I want you to leave your father's business, which eventually you would inherit, but I want you to leave that behind and follow me. We're told that he immediately left the boat. And Jesus and John, we know, knew each other before that day. Now, sometimes we think about the disciples being called as like, Jesus just kind of walking around the Sea of Galilee, just sort of picking people out. He knew John, and in fact, John's mother, Salome, and Mary, Jesus' mother, um, were in fact sisters. And so they're cousins. And so when he invited John to become a part of his band of disciples, he did know what he was getting himself into. He was passionate. He was impetuous. He asked Jesus at one point to call down fire onto a Samaritan village and just smite it. Um, another time, somebody was casting out demons and they weren't part of their group. And so he said, Jesus, take care of that person. I mean, that was kind of his personality. He had a real audacity to him that was reflected, actually, in the fact that he asked Jesus if, if, he, could, if he could sit at his right hand in eternity. He was prone to anger. He was prone to impudence. Um, however, walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, it changed his life. And he witnessed firsthand the miraculous life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. He was the last disciple turned apostle to die. Uh, he lived to be about 100 years of age. And so after the inception of the church in probably the early 30s AD, for the rest of that, for the rest of that century, he was involved in Christian leadership, building up churches, and much of his ministry had to do with writing. And he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters. We're looking at the first one today, uh, included in the New Testament, and then also the book of Revelation. And then 1 John, as we'll see, is like the author. It is very direct. It's authoritative. It's black and white, this or that. Um, 1 John is not, you know, kind of like an old man slipping into a warm bath kind of a thing. It kind of holds us up and he slaps us repeatedly throughout this book, but it's for our benefit. And so as clearly as anyone could, John lays out the marks of an authentic Christian life. Now, arguably, no one knew Jesus as well as John did. John saw Jesus in every kind of situation publicly, privately, popular, when he was popular, when he was unpopular, when he was under stress, when he was relaxing on Sabbath days. John was one of only three disciples that Jesus invited to some very special experiences, Peter, James, and John. And one of those experiences was to be there on the mountain of transfiguration. When Jesus's divinity shone through, it was kind of like he pulled back, you know, pulled back his cape and divinity shone through, just an awesome thing for them to experience. But this was an important eyewitness event for John. He talks about it in the first part of his book. Um, he was also there in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, when Jesus was so broken, um, really, with just what was about to come in terms of offering his life uh, that he, he sweat actual uh, droplets of blood. John sat at Jesus' side at the Last Supper. He was at the foot of the cross. And in fact, when, as he was dying, Jesus consigned John, uh, consi Jesus consigned his mother Mary to John. 
I mean, literally, it just says, woman, your son. And so Jesus is going to die, and he left, he left his mother, whom he loved, in, in his care. He was the first man to arrive at the empty tomb. He was the first to recognize Jesus risen from the death, from the dead, and, and he witnesses Jesus' ascent into heaven, as recorded in Acts chapter 1. And so it's fair to say that John was actually, if Jesus had a best friend, John was his best friend. He was his best friend in, in the world. I don't think Jesus ever played favorites, but I think that John was a very special person in his life. And he invited him into the most mundane and momentous moments of his life. And we also can see that John felt this love and received this love. There's an interesting liter literary device in the Gospel of John where when John is speaking of himself, he doesn't say John. He says, the disciple Jesus loved. And so he felt loved by the, by the Savior. And he took that in, and it changed his life. So what better person to write about living an authentic Christian life formed in Christ's life than John? And what better person to warn Christians about the counterfeits that are all around us? Now, as John wrote 1 John, he was deeply concerned about a heresy. And this heresy, it had roots in Greek thought, but it was, it was being hatched within uh, local Christian communities. It's a false teaching, and it undermined the authenticity of Jesus's life and his message. It's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism originated in the first century AD amongst some of these groups. And taken from the Greek word for knowledge, one of the Greek words for knowledge, gnosis, Gnostics believe that human beings are trapped in an evil material universe that blocks the divine spark. So matter is evil. But through enlightenment, people can emanate to a higher awareness of their divinity, and they can join God on the other side. So it's kind of a God-making motif. And since matter is evil, Jesus could not have had a real material body. Uh, his body was, was, it seemed to be a body. It was docetic. There was this docetism, this heresy that had to do, that came out of Gnosticism with the reality of Jesus. Did he, was he really a human being? Did he really have a physical body? And what the Gnostics believe is that, like, well, for all the world, he looked like it. He was just like a really good ghost. But he didn't really become divine until his baptism, when the dove came and rested on him, and that's when he received his divinity. But he skipped over any of the human stuff, because that is what is lower, that is what is evil, and, and he did not embody that. Since the body was evil, then you know, Jesus didn't have a body. And the other thing they believed is that since the body is evil, it doesn't matter what you do with it, right? So if you look at <clears throat> some of the writings of, of some of these Gnostics, their lives, you know, just go all over the place. There would be some who were just very harsh with their bodies. They denied it, their bodies, things that bodies need, and so very ascetic. And then there are others that are just profligate, just doing whatever, and you can do whatever you want because it doesn't really matter what you do because you know, it's just kind of an illusion, and the body is it's evil, and so you don't really need to worry about your, be, your behavior. At its core, however, Gnosticism just questioned reality. It questioned, well, what is the really real? Are our experiences, thoughts, and sensations, are they real? Or are these just things that we construct in our minds? Is there really something that exists outside of this room? This is all our experience. At least my mind is telling me that you are experiencing it, but maybe that's a construct, 
right? And maybe there's just no reality. There's just, I don't know, there's just darkness and just a ledge on that side. But then wherever I go, my reality, my brain constructs a reality for me to be in it. This is kind of how crazy the thinking uh, tends to get. And, and um, Eastern religions have something common to them, and that is that they see the world as an illusion. It's called maya. And that keeps the soul and consciousness trapped in the ignorance of everyday reality. So we're trapped in this, and so we need to be enlightened. The goal of the spiritual path is to wake from illusion to see reality. Right? In, the, in the movie The Matrix, which is about 20 years old now, I think most of you have probably seen it, but the most famous scene in the movie is Morpheus talking to Neo, and he says this. He goes, if you take the blue pill, then the story ends. You wake up in your bed, and you can believe whatever you want to believe. So in other words, take the blue pill, and you can stay in this unreality and just make up anything that you want. But if you take the red pill, then you stay here in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And so he's going to take him on a journey to understand reality. Well, is this true? Is that reality? I mean, are we really trapped in matter? and just released by gnosis, by knowledge. Gnosticism attacked the notion that anything can be authentic, that there is a truth and there can be an authentic expression or embracing or reflection of that truth. And so John, he puts his credentials out there. He was an eyewitness to the real humanity, to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, and he knew that if this foundational doctrine was muddled and was not understood, well, then Christianity, it could come right down with it. Because at the very root, at the core of our faith, if we're, if we're trying to understand, you know, what are the things that we share? What are the things that identify us as a Christian community or as a follower of Jesus Christ? It is believing that he was the God-man. It is believing that he truly had these two natures within himself, fully human and fully God. That is a foundational truth that these Gnostics denied. Transformation is possible. Truth can be known. Sins can be forgiven. God answers prayer. Jesus will return. And God's love is the strongest force on earth. That's reality as John presents it. And so in this book, he provides kind of an inventory for followers of Christ to have, to, to just to evaluate ourselves and then to have confidence in our identity in Christ. We can look at these things and they can provide assurance that we do actually belong to God and that we're on the right track. And it also can provide for us helpful corrections to reflect the authenticity that the Lord desires from us. And the first one, the first mark of authenticity is transformation. And simply put, spiritual transformation is the ongoing alignment of our attitudes, actions, and character into the person of Christ, right? And so, an authentic Christian does not accept Christ as Savior and stay the same. That is, that, is not a, that is not a biblical thought. And that is what John is going to present as we go through the first part of this letter. Transformation. Now, we live in a culture, interestingly enough, that is actually fascinated by transformations. We love transformations. 
We love it when something transforms, when something changes shape, when appearances are changed. It, it, can, it can give us hope of the possibility of transformation within our lives as well. And if a quick scan of reality TV uh, kind of proves it. And so reality TV has really made a living off of <clears throat> shows about transformation, the ugly duckling, intervention, dealing with drug abuse, the biggest loser, losing weight. Uh, extreme makeovers. These are all promises of transformation, and the transformation or the potential of it is the entertainment value of the, of the program. And then there's shows like The Dog Whisperer, Hoarders, and Hell's Kitchen uh, that promise that even dogs, houses, and restaurants can be transformed too, when you really think about what that's all about. And as fun and compelling as these external transformations can be, they are really just child's play compared with the transformation of a person's heart, of a person's nature and character. Internal transformations require the most powerful force on earth to affect. And it is a relationship with the really real. It's through an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and his love. That's what can change us, right? And so transformation needs to be a reality in our lives. And the first transformation that John brings up is the transformation of beliefs. Is, is what we believe actually about Jesus, uh, the word of life, whether we truly believe that he is the word and he is the word that turns death into life or we, don't, or we believe that he is some other sort of mysterious being uh, that certain groups have confused him with. So let's look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, that which was from the beginning. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John recently, you'll see how closely these two actually parallel. Um, the introduction to the Gospel of John and the introduction to 1 John. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you that the, that the eternal life, which was with the Father, has appeared to us. And we proclaim it to you, uh, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So this is an eyewitness testimony so that you also may have fellowship with us, because you need to have beliefs. You, have, you need to have certain convictions about who Jesus is in order for us to truly share in what might be called Christian community. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we write this to make our joy complete. And so if these readers of His and this is a general epistle. It, doesn't, it wasn't to a certain locale, so we believe it was just distributed all over the place. His joy will be complete if they understand this and apply it, and they experience joy. And so if they experience joy, the joy of knowing Christ in this way, then that will complete his. Now, John's aim <clears throat> is set, is to set Jesus Christ in the flesh before them. That's what he's emphasizing. He studied Jesus' manner of life. John heard his teaching. He noted its impact. He had firsthand experience with Jesus' body. He touched Christ before and after the resurrection. And here he makes three very straightforward claims. Number one, Jesus was from the beginning. He's from the beginning. He was from, he's from eternity, and he entered time. The eternal God entered our world. And so Jesus, as a part of taking on human flesh, entered into time. God is supra time. God is above time, but Jesus entered into it because it is within the bounds of time that human beings live. And so he was eternal and he entered the temporal 
The second one, Jesus' humanity was real. It wasn't seeming like it. It wasn't just some kind of a spiritual body that he had. It was a real human body. And thirdly, he came as the word of life. And Jesus came to offer his life so that he could change death into death into life. And so John sets before us the, the incarnation, as we call it, um, the entrance of Jesus Christ into history as a definitive revelation of God. And it is central. It is central to our faith. If a person rejects Jesus as God among us, we may know that person, we may like that person, we may have a friendship with that person, but if we're talking about sharing, koinonia, true Christian fellowship, that is actually a seminal belief. That is a foundational thing that needs to be there. We really can't express and, and you know, uh, thank God together. We can't really have this kind of communication unless there is this core belief about who Jesus really was. And it's interesting that a Gallup poll that was taken recently it showed that nearly half of those identifying as Christians, and not just Christians, but like church-going evangelical Christians, half of them believe that every religion worships the same God. And so there's no discretion. And what John is saying is like, this is the God we worship. This is, this is unique to any uh, of the world religions, the composite of Jesus as human and divine. There isn't something similar to that. This is the God that we worship. And so whatever we think that we're worshiping with other people, John says, you've got to come to this as, as, uh, as a first foundation for that kind of community, because that's at the center of our thought. That's at the center of our community. At the center is that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, physical, that we proclaim concerning the word of life. So that's the Jesus that we worship. So... We need to be aware of any Gnostic notions that we might have, because there's different ways that it can find its way, even into the lives of people who, are, who know Christ, who are devoted to him, um, because if we fall to some of these notions, then we're not going to pass the test of transformation. One is failing to confess sin. Well, Gnostics didn't confess sin because sin didn't matter. The body didn't matter. So you just kind of do whatever you wanted to do, and you know, that's it. You know, so there was not, not this time of, Lord, you know, I bring this before you. I ask you to forgive me again you know, for this. That sounds like my prayer life. Right? Gnostics didn't do that. Refusing to work for the poor and dispossessed. That's a Gnostic notion that enlightenment can replace the real needs of human beings. And so we'll just kind of let you be released and freed within your mind, and then what happens in your body won't matter. Well, it does matter. Denying a person can actually change is a Gnostic notion, can change in the flesh, uh, real change that happens. And Gnostics just said it just happened in your minds. But no, it happens in the real world. So Jesus lived a perfect life in real flesh to show how we can live, how we can live abundant lives. We form our life in Christ's life. That is, if, if there was just a, a very simple summation of the Christian life, it's that. It's that Jesus Christ's life is what is our model, it is our standard, and it's what we form ourselves into, and it's what the Holy Spirit empowers us to be formed into. And so John proclaims what he's seen and heard so that we can join in real fellowship with the Father and the Son and experience real joy that would complete his. That's, that's the first mark of an authentic Christian. It's transformed beliefs. This is foundational about the word of life. Fully human fully divine, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life.
transform beliefs. Next, he gets into behavior. An authentic Christian has transformed behavior. So we don't just enter into a relationship with Christ and remain the same. And the way that John describes this behavior that has been transformed is walking in light. So beginning with verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in this darkness, will we lie and we do not live out the truth? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And so there were some in these bodies, in these Christian groups, who were claiming to be enlightened. We are enlightened intellectually, spiritually. You know, there was a tremendous arrogance with some of this with them, um, even though their lives didn't show it. And they were practicing sin. I mean, they were walking in darkness. I mean, their lives evidenced that clearly, but they kind of, you know, kind of the Jedi mind trick. It's like, I really am doing good things. I really am walking in light. Right? But God is light. He is glorious, holy, and pure. And so what we do in this life, it matters in this life. We can't just do this that is not consistent with the behavior that is called for as we look at the life of Jesus Christ and say that it doesn't matter, that it is of no account. Darkness is the opposite of the Christian life here. It represents a Christless life. It represents the life that we lived before we came to faith in Christ, before the lights came on, and we saw who Jesus was, and we understood that we could live this manner of life if we confessed our sins, if we, if we followed after him, if we entered into Christian community and were built up so that we could live together into this image of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. The New Testament reveals that we were called out of darkness for this. We were called out of darkness into light. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as Christians, as, live as children of light. And then Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's kind of like, once the light is on, now you're on the lit path. And so if you claim to know him, then prove it. Prove it with your behavior. Words are tested by works. And so transform behavior, walking in light, it requires some things a good Gnostic would never do. And the first thing is to confess sin. Without repentance, Jesus' ongoing work of atoning for our sins, it just breaks down and we get polluted. We get polluted again. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he welcomes us into his family as an eternal gift. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're not going to lose that. We're not going to lose that assurance. But the thing that we can very quickly lose is the experience of salvation, is, is, is the experience of joy, as John puts it, because we are actually not walking in the light. Now, unconfessed sin, unconfessed sin is like never washing your bathtub, right? And you keep going in there and taking baths, but it's filthy, and so you don't get clean. And in fact, you start coming out of the bathtub with more dirt on you than when you went, went in there. I mean, that's kind of a weird picture, so don't really think about it too much. But, <laughs> but just the idea that like, if there's no cleansing, I mean, how long is it going to take for you not to want to live in your home? Um, if you just stop taking the trash out, right? I mean, if that's just building up and now the bags are in front of the sink and they're just, right? I mean, at some point it just becomes un an unlivable situation, but that is exactly what it's like if we don't confess sin. 
If we're not in that ongoing relationship with the Lord and we're agreeing with what is right and true and we're saying, Lord, again, I know you love me. I'm sorry. God, cleanse me. I want to abandon this. Help me to abandon it. Walking in the light is demonstrated by confessing sin and abandoning that sin um, as we are linked again with God's mercy. We need God's mercy. We see this in the next passage, 1 John 1.8 and following. Really familiar passage. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Directly to the Gnostics, because um, they were claiming not to be with sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The great promise. If we claim we have not sinned, well, then we make him, we're saying God's a liar uh, and his word is not in us. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So that's his purpose, to live transformed lives. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came and his blood covers us. It covers us. It takes care of the sin in our lives so that we can have a relationship with a holy God. He's the atoning sacrifice, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so Jesus's sacrifice, his death, all of that was efficient for anyone who would come to him and take advantage of this wonderful gift of having sins forgiven. <clears throat> and so God is just. And so his mercy has to be under, underwritten, and it's underwritten by Jesus's atoning sacrifice. He couldn't just embrace us as we are lost in our sin. Through Jesus, he took care of it. Forgiveness cancels our debts, and it dismisses all the charges against us. And the truth, John is saying, it's in him. The truth is not in us, it's in him. And we need to be in him for the truth to be in us. Verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Transformed behavior. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them, and this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Transformed life into the form of Christ. And so transformed beliefs, transformed behavior, and now finally the social test, uh, transformed relationships. And this is walking in light, but also walking in love, walking in love. 1 John 2, 9, it says, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or a sister is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. And so, John is, is painting this picture of just the effects of harbored anger and even hatred within our lives. And you know, a lot of times we like to think that we can live in some kind of an in-between with people. Like we'll have some event, we'll have some situation, we'll be indignant about something, and maybe somebody did something really bad to us. But instead of, instead of dealing with it in the way that Scripture invites us to deal with it, in a, a confrontation, in love, right? Because why? Because the relationships are important in the body of Christ. And it, it, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't please the Lord if we're sitting over there because we know whoever we're bugged at sits over there. At that point, you're just walking in darkness. And then 
because we haven't found it to, to forgive that person or to work through the, some reconciliation with them, well, then we just don't see things very clearly about them. We just see more and more reasons why they're such you know, a horrible person and don't really deserve our attention or our care or our forgiveness. That's what John is saying. It's like, if you don't, if you don't stick to this, if you don't walk, you know, if you fail to walk in love, and you just think that you can hold on and harbor this, it's going to affect you. It's going to affect your ability to see things and to relate to people in a way that is going to make you joyful, but also is going to please the Lord. And so walking in light, it means walking in love. Genuine faith is reflected in being rightly re related to God, to God and others. And, and, and that is as far as it lays with us, as Paul said in Romans. He says, as far as it lays with you, be at peace with all men. Some, another person may not allow that reconciliation to, have, to happen, but the question is whether or not we're actually trying to walk in love and affect that with another person. Love and hatred are in opposition to each other. It is one or the other. Lukewarm love isn't love. It isn't walking in the light. It's just apathy. It's just saying that that person is not important, and we're stumbling in darkness. The light shines on the path so that we can clearly and properly walk. Hatred distorts our perspective, it blinds our perceptions. And so love sees straight, thinks clearly, uh, it balances our experiences and outlook with the light of God's love for us. Transformed beliefs, transformed behavior, and transformed relationships. And that last one, love, that is going to be the next message in this series when we come back to 1 John in a few weeks. We'll talk more about that social test. Now, I hope you'll place that $100 bill in your wallet as a reminder of the importance of authenticity. I also hope you won't try to pay for something with it, <laughs> which <laughs> would be an interesting thing, right? We live in a world today, we know this, that says, you know what? I like your Jesus. I at least like the idea of Jesus, but I don't like, I don't like his followers. I don't like the people who claim to be you know, a part of his thing. And the problem and the reason for that is that many of us do live untransformed lives, right? We get muddled in our thinking about things. We lead an unexamined life. We don't examine our hearts. We may harbor anger and resentment toward others. And so for those of us who say, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus and I'm walking in his footsteps, and to have these things happening in our lives, well, it just, you know, there is something about the promise of the Christian life, but somehow the riches of it we're not really experiencing and we really can't share. And so, authenticity, the authenticity of a follower of Christ is so important because of its reflection, too, upon the person of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be like counterfeit bills that promise one thing and deliver another thing. We will not be perfect, but we do need to be in this process that John is talking about in this passage. First John reveals the riches Christ has vested in you, the power of Christ's life, and the sacrifice um, that we're called to, uh, to transform the lives of others. Let me pray for us. Father God, we're grateful for the clarity of this. Lord, it's really, it really is this or that. <clears throat> we don't always like that. We like wiggle room <laughs> with things. But Father, we need this. We need this very, very sort of cut and dried approach to challenge us, to challenge 
to challenge us, Father, to really live up to our confession. If we claim that we know the Lord Jesus, Lord, may our lives reflect the fact that we know the Lord Jesus. We are grateful for the transformation that is possible because of the Spirit's work in our lives, and may we welcome His work in our lives. May we open ourselves to Him and be filled with the Spirit. And so that, Father, He constantly works with us and helps us in this process of transformation that really only He can affect. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and everything that that means to us each and every day of our lives. We pray this in Christ's life. In Christ's name, amen.